Romans chapter 3. Excited to get back into Romans and hopefully get a little momentum. We're, as far as I know, done with guest teachers for a bit, unless I get COVID for a third time. So someone asked me a couple weeks ago, are we reformed, one of the young people in the church? Calvary Chapel, are we, are we considered a reformed church? So I did what I usually do when someone asks me a question like that. I answer the question with a question. When someone says, are we reformed or Pentecostal or evangelical or dispensational or fundamental, my response, tell me what that word means to you. Are we reformed? I don't know. What do you mean by reformed? I do that because I've learned the hard way before I answer like a theological question. Let's define our terms because people will use the same word to mean radically different things. Before I talk about how we are or aren't Pentecostal or evangelical or anything else, what do you think you're saying when you're saying that word? Because different people use them differently. I was pretty proud of myself. And it didn't work even a little bit. I said, what do you mean by reform? She said, I don't know. Someone asked me if Calvary Chapel was a Reformed church. I said, I didn't know, but I'd ask you, and it sounds like you don't know either. <laughs> you might be thinking, I don't know what this is going to have to do with Romans. As we turn to chapter 3 this morning, I, I think you'll see in a minute. Or six. Before we get into the word, let's let's let's. Do what I said, though. Let's define some terms. Reformed. I don't want to keep you in suspense. Reformed. Reformed church. Reformed theology is a term that goes back 5,500, sorry, 500 years. Reform goes back to and comes out of the Protestant Reformation. What's the Reformation? Protestant Reformation, Protestant as in protest, was a revolt that took place in the church in Europe in the 16th century against the bad leadership and even worse doctrine of Roman Catholicism. The Reformers, as the leaders came to be known, men like Martin Luther in Germany, Ulrich Zwigli in Switzerland, John Knox in Scotland, John Calvin in France, demanded a return to the Bible. Demanded that people be allowed to read it and that people and priests both believe and teach what it says on a variety of issues, but especially with regard to salvation. You might have heard of the five solas that came out of the Reformation. Sola is Latin for alone. It's a good summary of Reformation theology, especially in regard to salvation. And it's really the heart of what the Bible teaches. Sola Scriptura. Authority is, is the word of God alone, which tells us sola Christus. We're saved by Christ alone. Sola Gratia, by grace alone. Sola Fide, through faith alone. Soli Dea Gloria, for the glory of God alone. So far, so good? Super fast, borderline superficial summary for the Reformation. The Reformation reformed our understanding of the authority and teaching of Scripture and put the Bible back in the hands of the people. It was no longer the exclusive purview of popes and priests. It belongs to the people, was given to the people. One motto of the Reformation was, the word of the Lord remains forever. That's Isaiah 40, verse 8. 
that was a crest that people would sew or stitch onto their clothing to express solidarity with that. The word of the Lord remains forever. Verbum domini manet in aeternum is the Latin, and I promise that's the last Latin for this morning. The word of God remains forever, rules forever, above church tradition, above church leaders, above the distortions and perversions people try to impose on the word of God. The word of God remains forever. Seems bizarre, 500 years later, that it was necessary to think that recovering the word of God was needful. But if you were here last week, just last week, what did Rodrigo say? Do you remember the story that he told growing up in the Roman Catholic Church in Ecuador? Being told by a parish priest, don't read this book. I will read this book and I will tell you what it says. Now, thankfully, that's not every priest today, but it's not none of them. And it was all of them in Martin Luther's day, in John Knox's day, in John Calvin's day. And from their ministry and the reformation that they brought to the church came various church movements that still exist as denominations today. Luther gave us the Lutheran church. Calvin gave us the reformed churches. From John Knox, we have the Presbyterian churches. They all came out of the Reformation. They all held and hold to the solas. But the Reform and Presbyterian traditions have a specific way of reading them. I'm going to say reading into them. That has come to be known as Reformed. It's a distinct theology that you find today in churches, obviously calling themselves Reformed, and Presbyterian, but also in churches that call themselves covenant or sovereign grace. Many congregational churches are Reformed, even some Baptist churches are. Some of the distinctives of Reformed theology. The first is the sufficiency of Scripture. And we can get with them on that, right? 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, that the Man of God may be what? A complete and thoroughly equipped. Complete. Sufficiency of Scripture. That's good. But, but, but then we start to disagree in a few things. Replacement theology is covenant. Covenant as opposed to dispensationalist. I believe that the Bible says that God is not done with Israel that God deals with the church and with Israel in mutually exclusive dispensations, seasons, ages. And when the church age ends, God's dealing with Israel will resume. The Reformed theologian would disagree. Their basis would be covenant theology. And we'll talk about that when we get to Romans 11. We'll talk a lot about that. Reformed theology is also cessationist. They believe the gifts of the Holy Spirit have ceased. Cessationist as opposed to continuist, we believe that the gifts of the Spirit continue because Scripture doesn't say that they don't. We talked about that a bunch in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. We're going to talk about it again when we get to Romans 12. But most conspicuously and most relevant for our time together this morning, Reformed theology is Calvinist. Calvinism, for, named for John Calvin, is a doctrine of salvation associated with him. It really goes back to Augustine. And it says, among other things, 
that God predestines some for salvation, others for damnation, and there's nothing anyone can do to change that. The Calvinist says God destines some for salvation, others for damnation, and there's nothing that anyone, including the individual in question, can do to change that. Where does that come from? It comes from a particular understanding. Again, I would say reading into God's sovereignty. The idea that God is able to save anyone, but chooses for reasons only known to him not to. And it's not for us to question it's not for the creation to question the creator. We should just be sa- grateful he saved us. If, you know, he did. Hard to be sure. Way more to Calvinism than we have time for this morning. If you want to dig into this, and some of you will, I can point you towards resources upon resources, books upon books, links upon links. But the part that I just referenced, that the Calvinists would call the doctrine of irresistible grace... If you're familiar with Calvinism, it's the I in tulip. It's the fourth of the five points of Calvinism. The doctrine of irresistible grace is going to be especially relevant for our time together when we get to our text, which I promise we're going to. But the doctrine of irresistible grace says, if we're created to be saved, we will be saved. Someone will share the gospel with us, and because of the irresistible pull of the Holy Spirit, we will respond, we will be regenerated, we will be made righteous, we will be redeemed. Whether we want to be or not. Except that God will draw us, so we'll want to be. That's if we're created to be saved. Not everybody is. That's if we're part of the elect. Not everybody is. If we're not created to be saved, the Calvinists would argue, we can hear the gospel, we can agree intellectually with the gospel, but if God hasn't chosen us from the before the foundation of the world to be rescued by the gospel, we cannot respond to the gospel, we cannot be saved. And that idea breaks my heart. I'm just going to put it out there. I do not agree. And I'm deeply saddened by the concept. One of my saddest moments as a pastor was face-to-face with this, was up close and personal with the fruit of this. Hospital bedside of, of, a, of a parent of a brother in the fellowship. Dying, knew they were dying, terrified of dying because they didn't know, didn't think they could know what was waiting for them after death. Convinced that there was no way to know. Convinced they couldn't be sure whether they were one of the elect. So I'm me, and I did what I do, and I start sharing the gospel. And the response was, no, I know all that. I know all that. I just can't be sure that's for me. I can't be sure that I'm saved. I said, sure there is. And I went Romans 10. Because of course, right? Confess with your mouth that Jesus, the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. You will be. And, and I said, and I'm convinced that you are because you did and you have. No, that's not the way that it works. It absolutely is the way it works, I told them. And I went 1 John 5, 13. These things uh, things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. You may know. You get to know. I know. Why don't you know? He just shook his head. Because he was born and raised and lived and died in Reformed theology. 
which told him that God had either predestined him for heaven or predestined him for hell, and he would find out when he got there. John, the Apostle John, disagrees, clearly. And we're going to see in our text this morning, we're almost there. We're going to see in our text this morning, Paul disagrees. And before we're done, we're going to see Jesus disagrees. But we'll let Paul start. Romans 3, verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Sort of an abrupt way to start, except that he's not starting. He's picking up where he left off. Chapter breaks are arbitrary. They're man-made. This isn't really a start. Paul's picking up where he left off two weeks ago at the end of chapter 2. He's been talking about salvation for a couple chapters now. Talking about salvation, talking about our need for it. He's laying the groundwork for what's going to come in a couple chapters where he talks about how Jesus' death on the cross purchased our salvation, the salvation that we need, the salvation that saves us from judgment. But as he says this, in chapter 2, Paul started a dialogue with an imaginary reader. Remember, that's how Paul writes a lot of the time. He'll say something, and then he'll anticipate what the person that he's writing to is going to say, and then he's, he'll answer. Now, this is what I said, and here's what you're going to say in response to what I said, and here's what I have to say in response to what you're going to say. My daughter used to do this. She'd say at the end of dinner, can I have dessert? And, and before you tell me no, because I didn't eat my lima beans, I did eat all my chicken, and I did eat all my carrots, and I did eat all my mashed potatoes, and Dad didn't eat his lima beans either. Happy Father's Day, by the way, dads. <laughs> so chapter two, one and two, really. Paul's been talking about salvation, the utter necessity of it, the judgment waiting for us without it. And he's been imagining the Jewish reader responding, okay, but, but not us, right? I mean, that's, that's other people. We're, we're God's chosen people. We automatically escape judgment. We automatically go to heaven because God chose us. Did you, you right? He, Chose us? Starting to come back to you a couple weeks ago? If it is, then you'll remember Paul's response, chapter 2, verse 25. Circumcision, being Jewish, is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision, your Jewishness, has become uncircumcision. Your cleanness has been uncleanness. Being Jewish is great, Paul says. It's fantastic if you follow God. If you don't follow God, you're a sinner like anyone else. Being Jewish is a function of genealogy. Being circumcised is, is, is a modification to anatomy. The heart, the heart is what determines our eternity. Now let me hit, let me hit pause. Because a couple of weeks ago, I walked through the Jewish perspective on what Paul said, because that's who he's writing to at this particular part of the letter. So I walked through, hey, here's the dialogue between Paul and his Jewish reader, but then I circled back around, hey, now let's, let's see what there is for the church, and went through it a second time from the church's perspective. Obviously not doing that this week, because I already spent like seven or eight minutes teasing the application. So let me pause and make sure that we're all tracking with the parallel. Paul spent chapter 2 telling his Jewish reader, it's not enough to be chosen. It's not enough to be elected to be his people. Okay, if he's saying that to a Jewish reader, who else might he be talking to? Who else is chosen by God? 
Colossians 3.12, Paul writes, Therefore, as God's chosen people, and he's not writing to the Jew, he's writing to the church. Therefore, as God's elect, if you have the King James in front of you, same thing. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Do you see the parallel now? He's talking to a Jewish reader, but he's also talking to us because we are likewise chosen, chosen before the foundation of the earth. And he's telling us, great to be chosen, but there's something else in play. Great to be chosen, but don't forget about obedience. Great to be chosen, but keep in mind the gospel is not just an idea to agree with, it's a command to be obeyed. So, so unpause now. With that parallel in mind, kind of parallel track it here with me, let's go back to Paul's dialogue with his Jewish reader. Jewish reader who's asking verse 1. Okay, if that's true, Paul, if being chosen isn't a guaranteed ticket to heaven, then what good is it? What good is it to be Jewish? If being Jewish doesn't get me into heaven, what's the big whoop? What good is it? All kinds of good is Paul's answer, verse 2. Much good, much in every way. Chiefly because to them, by which he means us, the Jews, were committed the oracles of God. God gave us the law and the prophets. God chose us for revelation and for relationship. God appointed us to declare his glory to the nations. That's not a small thing. Well responds Paul's reader, then aren't you saying that God blew it big time? I'm not, says Paul. R2, says this reader. You're saying God called us to be his people, but we somehow messed that up. So now we're not his people. He wasn't able to get it done. God said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to call you. And then it didn't happen. So either he didn't because he couldn't or he didn't because he lied about it. Either way you look at it, God messed up. No, says Paul. Verse 3, what if some did not believe? So what that some don't believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Verse 4, certainly not. Underline those two words. That's home base for the rest of the morning. Certainly not. God's still waiting for us to be his people, Paul says. He still wants for us to be his people. But we get to decide whether we're willing to be his people. The fact that some decide not to follow him doesn't mean God doesn't want to be followed. The problem isn't the hammer, if you're looking at the picture. The problem isn't the hammer. The problem is the nail. Someone I knew back in New Jersey has been all over social media for a few months now. Die hard, can't change his mind, won't change the subject, flat earther. And, and he's not playing around like the whole birds aren't real kind of spoof. No, he genuinely believes the earth is not a sphere, physics is wrong, photos from space are faked, the earth is flat, and Antarctica isn't a continent. It's a 150-foot-high wall of ice that keeps the oceans in. I can't make it up. And that's fine. He can believe that. It doesn't change what's true. 
And in exactly the same way, Paul says to his reader in verse 4, Indeed, indeed, let God be true and every man a liar. You can disagree, but God's still right. As it is written, written by David in Psalm 51, that you may be justified in your words and may be overcome when you are judged. Those words have a greater impact when we realize where they're from. They're from Psalm 51. They're from David's confession after Nathan confronts him about his sin with Bathsheba. The context of those, those words, that verse, is David repenting, saying, I thought what I was doing was okay. I convinced myself that it was all right, that your word didn't apply to me, that I was an exception somehow. But you were right, God. You were right, and I was wrong, and I repent. So here in verse 4, Paul's taking that, and he's, and he's pulling a generalization from it. He's, he's establishing a principle, and the principle is if man and God disagree, God is always right, and man is never right. <laughs> If man's view and God's view conflict, God wins. If what I think is right, Paul says, conflicts with what God says is right, I can't be right. But that's not fair. This is Paul's reader chirping in again. Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Paul you're saying God is greater than we are. And you're saying that he proves it every time we stand next to him. Every time we stand next to God, we, we demonstrate just how true and right and perfect he is by how untrue and unright and unperfect we are. You're saying, Paul, our foolishness magnifies his greatness, so tell me why that's a bad thing. If our foolishness makes God look good... If our sin and error and unrighteousness prove how true and perfect and righteous he is, how can God punish us for that? How can he punish us for glorifying him? How is it just for God to send us to hell when all we've done is make him look good by being bad? Paul's answer, that's the dopiest thing I've ever heard. He asks, is God unjust who inflicts wrath? And he wants to make it clear that he doesn't believe that. He distances himself from the idea by saying, I speak as a man. That's what people think. What you're giving me, Paul says, that's a typically human response to God, and it's silly. Is God unjust because he judges you? Certainly not, verse 6. For then how will God judge the world? You're asking, who is God to judge me? He chose me. He shouldn't get to judge me anymore. Paul's answer, you don't have a problem with God judging anyone else. You tell anyone who will listen, God's going to judge you. God's going to judge you. You teach that. You believe that. You apply it. Why don't, why don't you apply it to yourself? It's like, it's like people who say, well, the Constitution is the highest law of the land. It's sacrosanct and inviolable. When they agree with it. When they disagree with it, it's a piece of paper that needs to be torn up. The Supreme Court... Is the highest court of the land. Their word is law. Until they say something that we disagree with, then it's a corrupt institution that should be abolished. Okay, pick one and live with it. You said that God is the righteous judge. Believe that and live with it. You don't get to change your mind about it when he applies his righteous standards of judgment to you. Well, well hang on. 
Paul's reader's not done. Verse 7. If the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? He's just repeating himself because he's hung up on being called a sinner. I'm chosen. I can't be a sinner. I'm chosen. He said I was chosen. So it can't be illogical. A lot it makes computers blow up on Star Trek. <laughs> if you think that, Paul says, verse 8, if you think that, then you might as well say, let us then do evil that good may come. Let sin abound that grace might abound all the more is going to be how he addresses it in chapter 6. But here he's saying, if God is glorified in judgment, then why not let sin happen? Because then more sin is more judgment and more judgment is more glory. Oh, that's a good idea. Mind-blowing idea for the week. The Christians that Paul killed, back when he was called Saul and was persecuting the church, rejoiced the day he entered heaven. Think about that. Paul entered heaven to the cheers of those that he martyred. Because that's how the gospel works. You can take the rest of the day and just think about that. That's crazy, right? But that's how the gospel works. How it doesn't work, and this is Paul's point, how it doesn't work is to suggest, well, then Paul should have killed even more Christians. And then there would have been more celebrating because God would have gotten more glory. That's what Paul's reader says Paul is saying. That's his reader's version, his reader's understanding of Paul's argument. And Paul's response, end of the verse, Paul's response at the end of verse 8 is to acknowledge, yeah, people say I say that. People slander us and say we believe that. All I can say, until he gets to chapter 6, all I can say is if that's what they believe about God's judgment, then they deserve God's judgment. But look at what just happened. We've been parallel processing. Let's come back and let's talk about the church and bring this conversation back to the church. Sometimes I switch gears and I'll, I'll take a corner on two wheels. People are flying out the door. At the, uh, the, 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 I don't want to do that. Four wheels on the ground. We're going to make a turn now. The Calvinist says what Paul's imaginary reader is accusing Paul of saying in verse 8. The Calvinist says, God creates some. God creates some sinners purely so he can judge them for sin. They're never going to be saved. They have no hope of salvation. The only reason for their existence is for God to judge them for their sin and glorify his name. What does Paul say when an imaginary reader accuses Paul of that kind of logic, of advancing that kind of argument? What does Paul say? He says, don't you dare suggest that's what I mean. More damnation means more glory, so we need more souls that have no hope of eternity. Don't you dare suggest that's what I'm talking about. I get that I'm working really hard to build out this application. 
the reason, one reason. Calvinists love this passage of Scripture and, and the passage that comes after it. The passage we'll look at next week, starting in verse 9. Calvinists love what Paul says here, because especially in the middle of the passage, Paul is defending God's sovereignty. Paul is saying, God is creator and ruler over creation. His judgment, his righteousness are perfect. So the Calvinist takes that and says, you're proving my point, Paul. God is sovereign over creation. So if he decides not to extend grace to this person or that person, if he decides to create a person who's going to have no opportunity for salvation ever, well, who are we to question? Isn't that what you're saying in verse 4? Let God be true and every man a liar? And just because creating a person with no potential for redemption seems unloving to us, who are we to instruct the Almighty? That's the reform line of thought. And at first glance, yeah, it seems, it seems like Paul agrees with it because he does say that God is sovereign. He does say his judgment is perfect. He's just, he does say it's for him to judge us and not the other way around. But why does he say that? Context. Context, context, context. Why does he say it? What point is he making? He's saying that God is faithful and righteous and we can't say that he's not if he holds people accountable for their choice that's his whole point in chapter one and two and he's still camping out there in chapter three he's not saying and and, and you can't twist this into meaning he's not saying we we can't judge god for not giving people a choice that could be a defensible position God is sovereign. He can do what he chooses. But that isn't what Paul is saying. He's not defending God for not giving people an opportunity to be saved. He's defending God for holding people accountable for their choice, for their decision regarding their salvation. The passage is not about the sovereignty of God nearly as much as the Calvinist wants us to believe. The passage is about the sovereignty of man. The Calvinist says, well, God can do what he wants. That's true. That's not Paul's point. That's not his goal. His goal is to convince the reader it's not unjust, it's not unrighteous for God to delegate his sovereignty. It's not unrighteous for God to choose in his sovereignty to let us be sovereign when it comes to our salvation. It's not unjust for God to choose not to force us to be righteous, to choose to let us decide whether to follow him, to choose whether we choose to walk with him or run away from him. The passage doesn't support Calvinism. It strikes at the very heart of Calvinism, actually. It denies irresistible grace. I had someone raised this question indirectly after church a couple weeks ago. Two weeks ago, we were talking about another false doctrine. We were talking about universal salvation, if you recall. How God is willing that none shall perish, 2 Peter 3.9. And at the cross, Jesus made it possible for anyone to come to repentance, to choose repentance, to come under his blood, to be saved. But the choice is up to us, and we need to choose. That was two weeks ago. One of my brothers rolled up on me out lunch after the service. And he said, so what you're saying is God is weak. 
He didn't really believe that. He was just, I'm weak on Sunday afternoon, and he wanted to see if he could get a rise out of me. <laughs> so what you're seeing is, is, is God is weak. He can't do what he wants. He wants to save us. He's willing that none shall perish, but he's not up to the task. Really wants to save everyone, can't quite make it happen. That's the Calvinist response to what you and I believe about 2 Peter 3.9. The Calvinist says it can't mean what it says that it means because that would make God weak, and that's heresy. God is omnipotent. God can do anything that he wants to. How can you say he's willing that none shall perish, but clearly people perish? Paul answers that argument in verse 3. He tells us clearly, disobedience, the disobedience of man is not a reflection on God's strength or God's sovereignty. It's just a commentary on man's depravity. God is sovereign, but in his sovereignty, he doesn't compel us. He loves us. He leads us. He lets us choose how to respond to Jesus. He lets us choose. That's what he did in the garden. He said to Adam and Eve, hey, there's a tree there. Choose wisely. They didn't. That's what Jesus did in Galilee. He presented himself as the Messiah with many irrefutable proofs. Gave them all the opportunity, all the information that they needed to make a decision. He didn't compel the decision. And when they didn't, what did he say? Matthew 23, 37. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not, what? Willing. I gave you a choice. You made the wrong choice. God didn't compel his people in the garden. He didn't compel his people in Galilee. Doesn't compel his people today doesn't drag us along after him. He says, follow me. Hebrews 3.15, if today you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Choose well. Choose Jesus. When you hear me, respond to me. When you hear me, answer me. When you hear me, choose me. Choose to be with me. Choose to be with me forever. We could keep going and we could pile verses on top of verses and the Calvinists would respond and we'd respond with more verses. But we don't have to go further than verse 3. Verse 3, Paul tells us the disobedience of man is not a reflection on God's strength or sovereignty. The fact that some people aren't saved doesn't mean that God is unable. It means that God in his sovereignty is respecting ours. If someone rejects God, has no use for the gospel, that doesn't mean God never had a use for them. Doesn't mean he never loved them, never chose them, never desired them to, to be saved. It means God respected their choice. For what if some did not believe, verse 3? What if some do not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Paul's answer, certainly not. <clears throat> God can call someone. Choose to offer salvation to someone. Inform and enlighten them with the truth of the gospel, the opportunity that they have because of the cross. They might still say no, and that's not a commentary on God. It's a commentary on them. Side note to my Calvinist brothers and sisters, some of whom who are here and fidgeting in their seats, waiting, waiting for, for their turn, for the rebuttal. I love you. You're my brothers and sisters. And we can finish arguing about this in heaven. But before we start the debate, let's make sure we're arguing over the right things. 
I'm not rejecting the solas. Love the solas. Disagree with how some people interpret them. I wholly embrace the sovereignty of God. That's undeniable. He's creator and ruler of creation. And, this might fool you or, or confuse you, I wholly embrace the idea that God predestined some to be saved. Wait, you agree with predestination? Yeah, because the scripture teaches it. Romans 8.29 and a bunch of other places. So I can't ignore it. But I can't ignore what else the Bible says, that people have free will to choose or reject God. Paul just says so in verse 3. And the Bible says so again and again. How can both be true? This is where people get stuck. Predestination and free will, how can both be true? Because God is true. Verse 4, God is true. And that's the truth he gives us in his word. That he chooses us and we choose him. God is true. And we become liars, still verse 4, if we reject it because it seems strange to us. Because we want the answer to be simpler, more accessible, more comprehensible. Because we want the, the answer to, to be what we would do if we were God. God is true. And God is big. Bigger than us, greater than us in every way, which is the closest that I can come to reconciling how he can choose us and we can choose him both at the same time. And I can't find my clipboard. It's right there. Thank you, Hector. You might have seen this illustration before because I've used it before. Connect the dots without touching the paper between the dots. If you're restricted to two dimensions, if the only dimensions that you live in are length and width, you can't do it. You can't get from here to here in two dimensions without touching the paper. Add a dimension, introduce height to the equation, all of a sudden, I didn't quite do it. <laughs> all of a sudden, I can connect the dots without touching the paper in between. The mathematician will tell you that's how to resolve a paradox. To release the tension, add a dimension, is, is the clever saying. How many dimensions does God have? The rabbis, ancient rabbis reading Genesis, thought that he must have at least 10. I don't know how they got there, but they believed it. They wrote about it. We know that Jesus in his glorified body has more dimensionality than we do. He walked through walls. So, I think it's a small thing for God to reconcile what is to us a paradox. Because he's big. And he's true. We could keep going. Any top ten list of things that Christians disagree about, this is on the list, probably at the top of the list. If you want to dig deeper into this, if you want to wrangle about this, hit me up. We'll have some fun. But, but let's wrap things up. Are we reformed? If you mean, do we hold to Reformation theology, the five solas, yeah. Yes and amen. If you mean, do we think that God in his sovereignty overrides our free will to save or condemn, I do not. Well, why is this a big deal? Patrick, surely you didn't go down this road just because some teenager asked you if Calvary was reform. We're not reform. I'd, that's cool. That's fine. I hear you. I didn't think that we were. Glad to know that we're not. Why so much time on this? 
We're talking about it because indirectly Paul's talking about it, and that's how we roll. That's what's next. <laughs> we left off at the end of chapter 2. Now we're in chapter 3. We're talking about it also because someone might ask you, like someone asked me, are you reformed? If not, why not? And, 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 and it's important to be able to answer in terms of the Bible. I cringe when people say, well, Calvary teaches this or Calvary teaches that. Calvary doesn't teach anything. Let the name of Calvary perish and the word of God remain forever. Let the name Patrick perish and the name of God endure forever. It's not what Calvary teaches. It's what the Bible says. But here's the other reason we're talking about it this morning as, as, as we wrap up. And I'm just going to be honest. I think it's useful to talk about Reformed theology because sometimes I really want to believe it. I know that sounds weird to hear, but it's true. Sometimes I very much want to be a Calvinist. Sometimes I desperately want to believe that this person or that person is destined to hell from birth and there's nothing that I can do about it, so then I'll have an excuse to not try to do anything about it. You see what I'm saying? I'm just, I'm just being real here. Not because I have this need to confess my sin, but because maybe I'm not the only one. Not the only one who looks at someone lost in their sin, heart-hardened against God, angry at anyone who takes the Bible seriously, and, 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 and is tempted to say, fine, it is what it is. You're going to hell and walk away feeling righteousness while you, while you do. Am I the only one? Don't raise your hands. But, but seriously, isn't there a part of you every so often that wants to look at that person living for themselves, given over to rebellion, lashing out at anyone who tries to love them, and just say, fine, <laughs> be that way forever. You were never meant for heaven. I'm going to flip a switch. I don't have to care about you anymore. I don't have to think about you ever again. Now, my Calvinist friends would be quick to point out they don't do that. They don't stop evangelizing because they don't know who is and isn't destined for salvation. So they need to tell people just like, I get that. The thing is, if I were a Calvinist, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> and the way I know I wouldn't do that is there are times that I know I want to decide you're one of the people that got created with no capacity for salvation. The only purpose for your existence is to become kindling, to, flame the, the, to, to stoke the fires of hell. So I'm not going to keep banging my head against the wall. I don't have to keep getting hurt. I've got an excuse to move on. Except Paul reminded us this morning, reminded me this morning, I'll own it. Reminded me, maybe reminded some of you, we don't get to do that. Verse 3, we don't let to get the unrighteousness of man, even when it's in our face. We don't, we don't get to let the sinfulness of people, even when it directly affects us, hurts us, wounds us, we don't get to let it change what we know about God. And we know he's willing to save everybody, because he said so. And we know he sent us into the world to share the gospel with everybody. 
Because he said so. We know that he's called us to love everybody in his name, even those who don't listen to us, even those who hate us and want us dead. We know we're called to love them because he said so. And we know that we're called to pray for them. When we can't find any other way to love them, we know we're called to pray for them because he said so. God has called us to care for every soul because he does. And he's called us to not give up on any soul because he doesn't. It'd be easier if, if, if he did so we could. It'd be easier if God gave us permission to, to, to give up because praying without seeing change, that's just dis disheartening. Having, having our, our best efforts to love thrown back in our face, that's discouraging. Seeing the gospel mocked is, is depressing. It'd be easier to just believe God is going to save those he's going to save. He's not going to save the rest. It's up to him and not have to deal with the pain of watching up close and personal people choosing to reject him, running headlong towards a hell full of fire. Except that's what they're doing, isn't it? Choosing to reject him which means we get to do what Jesus did, what Jesus does. We get to choose to pursue them. We get to choose and keep choosing to share the gospel. We get to choose and keep choosing to show the gospel, to love. And when we can't do anything else, we get to choose and keep choosing to pray and pray and pray that they'd respond to the gospel. Do you have someone like that? Last week, Rodrigo did something really interesting. He invited us and gave us time to pray for that hard-hearted person, that prodigal person, that rebellious person, that atheistic, agnostic, angry person. Oh, that was fantastic. And I'd like to end... Our, our time doing that again. Lord, the faces that we're seeing in our mind's eye, the names that you're bringing to our remembrance, the realities of people's situations, of people's souls. Lord, you know and we call upon your name. We call upon your love. We call upon your mercy. God, you know them better than we do. You know them better than they know themselves. You know their pain. You know what's brought them to the place that they're in. You know how to reach them there, how to speak to them, how to appeal to them. Lord, we ask that you would. No one comes to the cross. No one comes to salvation unless your spirit draws them. Lord, would you speak to them, appeal to them. Make your love and mercy manifest to them. They have to choose, Lord, but reveal yourself to them. You tell us to stand at the door and knock and keep knocking. Lord, would you keep knocking on the door of their hearts? 
would you keep appealing to them? And would you stir us to keep remembering them and bringing them before you in prayer? Because we believe, Lord, we know you tell us. Prayer changes things. Change things for these people, Lord, for these souls. Change their eternity. Speak mercy to them. Beckon them, invite them, draw them, Lord. We ask, we ask in your name. We ask in your love. We ask in your mercy, Lord. Feel free to continue to pray as we consider God's call to be Jesus to the people in our lives, to bring his message, to manifest his mercy, to intercede as, as he intercedes for us. We get to do that. And we must not find a reason to abandon it.